Uh, so you guys should be getting uh, handouts of the outline. Um, and I put the summary in two places today, at the top and the bottom, uh, just to sort of give you a, a quick glimpse at uh, what we're going to be looking at today. Um, the overall focus uh, is David's focus in these last four chapters of First Chronicles, which is the temple. Um, we'll see <clears throat> first God setting up protection for his temple and his how his people will make the point that his people need to joyfully submit uh, to the protection that he sets up. Uh, then through David, God providing administrative structure and treasure supply for the temple. And then uh, thirdly, Solomon's ascension to the throne, which is all about God's provision, the temple, and about God's glory ultimately. <clears throat> uh, in weeks past, uh, I've pointed out that the structure of this section is kind of bookended by uh, chapter 17 and then 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, um, which are uh, uh, sort of corresponding accounts, first of God's uh, exchange with David, um, giving the promises and David receiving them, and then Solomon recounting that on the occasion of the dedication of the temple there in Second uh, Chronicles 6 and 7. <clears throat> so where we are falls in between sort of those bookends, uh, and you see in uh, under point one there, structure, letters C and D are where we are today. Uh, the end of the establishment of the liturgical hierarchy of the Levites, and then the establishing of the imperial government through the end of First Chronicles. <coughs> uh, so go, go ahead and turn to chapter 26, First Chronicles, if you're not there already. <coughs> uh, this section started in chapter 23 with the counting and the assignments of Levites, and particularly Aaron's sons for Levitical and priestly duties. Uh, we noted that the chronicler's likely effort is to show uh, continuity and legitimacy of those assigned with the Aaronic priesthood uh, as it likely has existed to his own day in Jehozadak's son Joshua. Uh, and then in chapter 25 we read about the assignments and plans for the music ministry at the temple um, and noted that, that that's probably the, the largest uh, body of commentary on music and, and the structure for musical worship in all of scripture. <clears throat> uh, and now we pick up in chapter 26 with the final assignments being made for the temple's uh, workers. Uh, divisions of the gatekeepers. Uh, verse 1, for the divisions of the gatekeepers, there were the Korhites, uh, Meshelamiah, the, the son of Kor, the sons of Asaph. Um, an observation I didn't make last time from chapter 23 is that the Levites who are not priests, those who are not of the sons of Aaron, uh, are given various positions working under the priest to assist them, and that would be the case with the gatekeepers here. Um, there could be hints here of a parallel with officers in the New Testament church, um, it's given to 24,000 of them, uh, we see in verse 4 of chapter 23, to, quote, oversee the work at the temple. Um, and you could sort of find an echo there in the New Testament of overseers being set up under the priesthood of Christ uh, as the, the leaders of the, of the church, which is the new temple, of course. Uh, here at the beginning of chapter 26, we find gatekeepers who are tasked with protecting the temple. Um, and, and throughout, I think, we'll see glimpses of this reality of the church and its individual members being the new temple, the temple in the new covenant, the place where God makes his dwelling, where he makes his spirit to dwell. <coughs> um, and, and this setting up of gatekeepers, of protectors of this place, of God's glory in his dwelling with his people, uh, kind of seems reminiscent to me, at least, of the charge from Paul to Jesus' under-shepherds in Acts 20, 
where Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And verse 31, the charge to them, therefore, be on alert. So in a sense, they were set up as gatekeepers uh, for the place of of God's dwelling with his people in the church in the New Testament. Um, Paul here is admonishing the elders, of course, like I noted, also seen as overseers in the New Testament, uh, the, the elders at Ephesus, to be alert to intruders who would endanger the new temple, the church and its members. Uh, while I understand it may be a bit of a stretch to relate these roles textually, certainly they are related conceptually. Uh, the clear New Testament teaching is in apparent contrast to the wealth, the physical treasure built up in Israel, um, specifically to the material glory of the temple, and we get that from Matthew 6. Uh, Jesus is teaching, starting with verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and then specifically in Luke 21 regarding the temple um, Jesus with his disciples and the text reads and while some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts he said Jesus said as for these things which you are, you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. Uh, this discontinuity would indicate a different kind of treasure, for which the temple treasure was maybe something of a type. It adorned what was then the dwelling place of the Spirit. Um, as I said, in the New Covenant, the Spirit dwells in the church and in each of its true members individually. And each of us is to be adorned with treasure, but not physical treasure. The treasure of righteousness, which is characterized uh, in 1 Timothy 2, 9, and 10 by godliness and good works. And much like we see here in chapter 26 uh, of 1 Chronicles, the intentional organization of those who were officially tasked with protecting the treasure, both the physical treasure and the sanctity of the temple and its grounds, um, Paul's New Testament ministry in particular shows that God continues to be intentional to organize effective, practical protection of the treasure of his temple. In this case, the godliness and purity of his temple, the church, and its members, individual believers. Uh, If there's a takeaway for us here, uh, I think it's to see uh, God's wonderful provision in setting up protectors for us and our elders in the the structure that he's ordained in the New Testament teaching. Um, How he continues to value and provide for the protection of the treasure he has placed in his temple uh, and continues to cultivate uh, among his people. Uh, As it says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, knowing this, we should obey our leaders and to submit to them, for they keep watch over our souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to us. Uh, Getting back to to 1 Chronicles 26, let's go ahead and get further into the text. Um, uh, We see some of the intentionality and importance the chronicler sees in the organization of gatekeepers Uh, By the way, he pauses here to list the families and their duties. Uh, I'm not going to run through all the names, uh, but there are a few things to note. Uh, First, we find some qualifications beyond being Levites. That's a given. Uh, Some qualifications uh, for the men who are assigned these responsibilities. Um, And remember, again, the chronicler is probably emphasizing these things because he wants the people to understand in his own day after the return from exile uh, that these things continue to be important in the way they worship, in the way they set up uh, or, or redo, reset up what uh, had been ordained by David in the temple. Um, so just a brief survey of the next few verses. Uh, verse 6, a characteristic of these men who were tasked as gatekeepers. 
Um, also to his son Shemaiah, sons were born who ruled over the house of their father, for they were mighty men of valor. So strength and valor are important. You see that again in verse 7, uh, that they were valiant men. Verse 8, uh, they were able men with strength for the service. Um, verse 10 uh, seems probably an indicator of, of the chronicler's purpose of setting up or, or showing the legitimacy of, uh, of uh, a line probably that, it, that persisted to his own day. Uh, notes that Hosa, one of the sons of Merari, had sons, Shimri the first. Uh, although he was not the firstborn, his father made him first. Um, so probably answering a question as to why this family had the prominence it had. Uh, verse 12, uh, this was given to the chief men, and noting here the importance, like the importance of the other Levitical offices or, or functions that have been set up, these are duties like their relatives uh, to minister in the house of the Lord. And then to sort of seal that off, verse 13 pointing out that this was done by the casting of lots. Um, and and we, we focused on that uh, previously, that this was an emphasis made uh, to show that the decisions uh, being made were being done by the casting of lots in order to demonstrate that these duties were being assigned according to God's providence and not due to any preference on the part of the leaders. Um, again, it's likely that this was done by the chronicler, at least in part to dispel any controversy that had arisen over these assignments uh, at the time when the chronicler was writing. <coughs> Uh, next, we see even more specifically how thorough the protection is at the, at the uh, four temple gates, uh, along with some more qualifications and characteristics. Um, verses uh, 14 through 16 note the east gate, the north gate, the south gate, uh, and the west gate. And then we see somewhere in here. Ah, east is up there. Is north? Yeah, north is in there. So all four are there. Uh, all four gates are there, and we see uh, at the end of verse 16, guard corresponded to guard, uh, which basically means they stood shoulder to shoulder. There were multiple guards assigned to each gate, and uh, the, the protection was thorough. Uh, and those numbers are given in verse 17. On the east, there were six Levites, imagine shoulder to shoulder. On the north, four daily. On the south, four daily. And at the storehouse, two by two. Uh, the storehouse was an outbuilding at the temple gate, um, which we get from Nehemiah. Uh, and then uh, a little bit of a, a strange thing in the text. At the parbar on the west, there were four at the highway and two at the parbar. Uh, parbar is a rare Persian word, um, which I think starting with the King James was left untranslated. Um, in all likelihood, it just sort of means courtyard or colonnade. Um, so the sense would be, uh, for the western courtyard, four guards on the road and two in the courtyard. It's likely there's just a, a little bit of a different setup at that gate. Um, again, verse 19 highlights the importance of the Levite families chosen for the various roles. Uh, sort of a summation. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers, the sons of Korah and the sons of Merari. Um, you may recall from last time when we were in chapter 23, we read, we read uh, verse 4 about the 6,000 who were appointed as officers and judges. And I noted that the appointments to these roles would be described more fully in uh, chapter 26 here, verses 20 to 32. Uh, and that's where we are here, <coughs> starting with verse 20. Uh, the Levites, their relatives, had charge of the treasure the house of, God, of the house of God and of the treasures of the dedicated gifts. Um, now, there are some difficulties in this passage uh, going on through verse 32 in terms of what exactly is meant by some of the family descriptions. Uh, but according to one commentator, the main idea is clear from verse tw verses 21 and 22. 
um, and that is that the family, uh, the sons of Laden, the sons of the Gershonites belonging to Laden had charge of the temple treasure. Uh, you get that from verse uh, 22. Verses 23 to 28 describes the uh, assignments of other related tasks, the family of Gershom, uh, son of Moses, which you see in verse 24 was in charge of the things dedicated by David and other leaders, um, including um, uh, Samuel, the seer, and then as well as plunder that was taken from military conquests. And that goes through verse 28. Again, it's likely in all of this that the chronicler wants to emphasize the legitimacy of assignments that need to be reinstated in his own day. Uh, this may be the reason for the emphasis on an individual name like Shelometh, uh, which is in verse uh, 26 and 28. And he probably wouldn't have had a, a great deal of prominence at the time of the original assignments in David's day, but it's likely, again, that his family persisted in some prominence to the chronicler's day, and this was to, to set up uh, the legitimacy of that. <clears throat> Verses 29 through 32 indicate how widely the Levites served in David's kingdom. Uh, not only did they work in the temple, but they also handled many worship and social duties throughout the kingdom of, uh, of Israel. Um, if you'll do the math, um, based on the numbers found in verses 30 and 32, uh, you'll find that there are 4,200 Levites assigned to these outside duties, meaning that the assignments covers, covered in verses 20 to 28 would have comprised actually the minority of the 6,000 assignments um, for officers and judges at only 1,800. So most of the assignments for these men come outside of the temple. Um, and I think you'll see why that would be important uh, because of the two functions that probably uh, were the main responsibilities of these outside workers. And we get these from uh, Deuteronomy 33, uh, verse 10. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. And then Deuteronomy 17. And, and David, of course, would have been looking back uh, at the law to see what the function was supposed to be for Levites as he was making these assignments. So Deuteronomy 17, um, so you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days and you shall inquire of them and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. So these men were split up and, and sent uh, to the east and the west uh, to, to all the geographically diverse places where the Israelites were so that they could teach the law to the people and so that they could judge according to the law when there were disputes or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> and then next we see how, that over, how oversight of that work was divided geographically and given to uh, men by the name of Hashabiah and uh, Jerijah, both Hebronites, verse 30. As for the Hebronites, Hashabiah and his relatives, 1,700 capable men, had charge of the affairs of Israel west of the Jordan for all the work of the Lord and the service of the king. Uh, and then, as for the Hebronites, Jerijah the chief, these Hebronites were investigated according to their genealogies and father's households, so we know that they were set up correctly according to the law, according to the correct families, in the 40th year of David's reign, and men of out outstanding capability. So they weren't just qualified according to their family, they were also qualified according to their ability, uh, were found among them at Jazer Gilead. And his relatives, capable men, were 2,700 in number, heads of fathers' households, and King David made them overseers, there's that, that word again, of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites, and these were the tribes east of the Jordan, uh, concerning all the affairs of God and of the king. Um, and again, if we think of this in terms of what the, the chronicler is trying to communicate to his first readers, it's clear that he is giving priority to being true to the requirements of the law, 
that the Levites minister in these ways, uh, specifically teaching and judging according to the law for all of Israel, even as they are spread out geographically, which certainly was the case again following the return from exile. So sort of a pattern that the chronicler is trying to lay out in terms of what was done by David and what needs to be done now uh, following the exile. And it returns sort of the, to the overarching concern that we've seen throughout First Chronicles, and that is that worship, which is all of life, including settling disputes, for example, or coming to understand God's word, is done according to the law. So those who are supposed to teach according to the law, David's making sure that those are the men who are set up to teach, and he has people to oversee that that's happening, making sure it's happening in the east and in the west. Uh, with that, we come to our next major section, uh, chapter 27, starting there. Um, and that's according to the structure we've been following. The chapters 27 to 29 describe the establishment of the imperial government, uh, beginning here in chapter 27 with the military leaders. Uh, we see in verse 1 that these leaders were on duty month by month throughout the year. Uh, verse 1, now this is the enumeration of the sons of Israel, the heads of fathers' households, the commanders of thousands of hun and, and of hundreds, and their officers who served the king in all the affairs of the divisions which came and went, uh, came in and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, each division numbering 24,000. <coughs> uh, now the wording here indicates something significant. This is a permanent standing army, not a voluntary militia. Um, considering the fact that the law looked negatively on the development of uh, large standing armies, and we get that from Deuteronomy 17, where there's a command against multiplying horses for this purpose, and then 1 Samuel 8, uh, where Samuel warns that by asking a king for themselves, the people would bring this kind of burden on themselves. Um, the fact and size of this standing army may shed some light on David's motivation for his unlawful census back in chapter 21. So he's setting up something that's kind of viewed negatively by scripture and uh, desiring to do it in strength, in the strength of people. Um, and, and so certainly some sinful motivations there, and that plays itself out in what we've looked at already in uh, uh, chapter 21. Uh, verses 2 to 15 list the 12 groups of 24,000, one for each month, and again, I won't go through all the names here. Um, verses 16 to 24 list the officers of the tribes, um, and it's the same breakdown that the, that the chronicler has in his original genealogy uh, with some substitutions um, in terms of tribe names. Uh, the addition here is significant. Uh, in addition to 12, he gives a 13th, and that is um, for Aaron Zadok. Uh, so he's adding the Aaronic line uh, in significance, raising it up to the same level as the 12 tribes. Um, and again, to, to highlight his focus on the temple and the priesthood. Um, what you might notice if you look closely in those verses, uh, 16 through 22, uh, is something unusual in this context. We've been seeing lists with a lot of numbers, and there aren't numbers provided here. There's no count for these men. Um, and then we find an explanation of that, which is another sort of unusual textual feature in verses 23 and 24. Um, it, it explains the lack of numbers, starting with verse 23. But David did not count those 20 years of age and under, because the Lord had said he would multiply Israel as the stars of heaven. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, had begun to count them, but did not finish. And because of this, wrath came upon Israel, and the number was not included in the account of the Chronicles of King David. Uh, now, as you might recall, I made reference to this portion of text several weeks ago when we talked about David's census, uh, and you may have picked up on some difficulty in the way verse 23 and 24 read. 
It's hard to tell exactly how these items relate to one another in terms of cause and effect. First, the not counting those of 20 years of age and under. Second, the Lord saying that he would multiply Israel as the stars of heaven. And third, Joab not finishing the count. Uh, it seems best to see the main point of all of this as being that uh, it all contributed to the lack of account and the lack of numbers here in the Chronicler's uh, account. Uh, but to break it down, first, David followed Moses' lead in not counting those aged 20 and under, and the cross-reference for that is Numbers 1, verse 3. So we don't have a count for them. That one's simple. Uh, but it seems the verse division between verses 23 and 24, which, of course, remember, isn't inspired, uh, might sort of artificially divide the fact of Joab's decision not to finish the count from its cause. Uh, if you remember from chapter 21, David's command uh, to number the people was described as abhorrent to Joab. That's 21 verse 6. And this portion of text likely gives us the reason. Uh, and that would be that God had promised to make Israel into a multitude that could not be numbered. That's in the uh, Abrahamic covenant promise in Genesis 15. David's intention to count the people for reasons apparently related to boasting in human strength clearly violated this covenant promise, and Joab probably picked up on this. And this would show a distrust of God's faithfulness and his ability to protect and prosper his people regardless of their physical number, strength, and skill. Um, so in keeping with the main point of these two verses being to explain the absence of numbers in verses uh, 16 to 22, we see in the last half of verse 24 that the overall effect of the census was to provoke God to wrath. And that for this reason, along with Joab leaving the account, the account incomplete, the numbers that were produced weren't even included in David's official record, and thus the lack of information here. Uh, verses 25 to 34 describe the final group of leaders mentioned, uh, those, <coughs> excuse me, officials in charge of David's property. Verse 31 provides something of a key to understanding that this section is divided according to 12 representative officials, uh, and that's in verses 25 to 31, and then a set of remaining uh, leaders, verses 32 to 34. Uh, what we gather from the, the 25 to 31 section is that like other ancient kings, David had great private holdings, uh, including storehouses, watchtowers, agricultural workers, vineyards, uh, olive and sycamore trees, uh, olive oil, cattle, camels, donkeys, and flocks. Um, the point of this section may be to indicate that David had put in place a competent administration that would serve Solomon well. Uh, and of course, we know from later texts that Solomon's private wealth would far exceed that of his father David uh, from his lifetime. Uh, and so we could be seeing again a lesson here for the original readers that it's necessary for each generation to build a foundation on which the coming generations can build as God prospers his people more and more as they live and work faithfully for his purposes. And this certainly is the chronicler's hope uh, for, the, for the generation to which he's speaking and, and we can appropriate that as, as the hope for us also, that uh, as we build our homes and our churches, um, that we're building something for future generations to build on also, um, that it continues to serve that purpose. Verses 32 to 34 uh, serve to further this same point by including significant leaders who had not yet been mentioned in this section. Um, uh, Jonathan, is David, Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor, a man of understanding. Ahithophel was a counselor to the king, and we know from 2 Samuel that the advice of, of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So a greatly respected counselor who went on to uh, betray David, actually. <coughs> but uh, the chronicler, in keeping with his sort of positive focus, um, doesn't get into that. Uh, and then verse 34, 
uh, mentions Joab, who of course was David's great commander of the army. Uh, so we can gather from all this that David had built an exceedingly competent managerial structure, uh, drawing on the support <coughs> of very capable men from all of Israel. And we're going to see that again here, but that, that's been the case throughout, that the whole nation is coming together in support of David, in support of the ascension of Solomon to the throne, uh, and, and this is in contrast with uh, previous divisions and subsequent divisions, which the chronicler is likely trying to overcome in his day. <coughs> uh, turning to chapter 28, um, we return here to the themes of the Davidic king and the temple. Um, as we've noted, at least since chapter 17, and really before with David's entry to Jerusalem as a sort of a Melchizedekian priest-king figure, the chronicler's primary concern in recounting events in the life of David has been the promise of a coming king to reign over God's people. And of course, ultimately for the chronicler and and in and, and our reading uh, as, as uh, New Covenant believers, um, it's pointing to Christ, pointing to the Messiah, to the Messianic promise. Uh, a key component of this promise, uh, to be fulfilled in the near term, at least as a type of what is to come, is that one of David's descendants would rule over God's kingdom and build a house for him. Um, from the chronicler's threefold repetition of this promise, and I noted that on the, on the outline here, first in uh, chapter 17, verses 9 to 14, then we read it in chapter 22, 9 to 10, um, David recounts it to Solomon, and then here in chapter 28, verses 6 and 7, um, and that, that in, <coughs> excuse me, in combination with his distinctly eschatological take on it, um, particularly in de-emphasizing the hope of its near-term fulfillment in the chapter 17 account, which, if you remember, we looked at that and, and observed that the likely reason for that is he's writing this and his readers are reading this uh, long after the unfaithfulness of Solomon and the unfaithfulness of subsequent kings and, and the clarity with which you can see that all the promises there in chapter 17 have not yet been fulfilled and there's this expectation of future fulfillment in Christ. Um, so because of that uh, clear messianic or eschatological focus on the part of the chronicler in, in combination with his threefold repetition of the promises to this point, we can, we can surmise at least two things. First, that this promise and its fulfillment are of utmost importance to the chronicler. Um, for him, this is a great deal of what his hope is, uh, and he wants this to be the hope of his people, and it should be the hope for us, our hope in the Messiah. Secondly, uh, in the chronicler's mind, this promise remained to be fulfilled in his own day. So keep these in mind as we continue in the text. The text here uh, has more to do with near-term fulfillment as Solomon ascends to the throne. Verse 1 of chapter 28. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel. So again, comprehensive. It's, it's all of Israel. And then in detail, the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king and the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. And uh, note there how that in verse 1 was sort of a summary statement of much of what we've been looking at in the preceding chapters. We could be taking this to say, first, what he's done, let me describe in detail how awesome is the kingdom and administration being set up. And that, then let me show you its culmination in making Solomon king. Um, and this, this could, again, sort of be taken um, in a couple ways. One is relating to the chronicler's first audience, and another is for us as as, as as Christ builds his church, he's setting up something. The history is moving in the direction 
of uh, the fulfillment of all things in his millennial reign on the earth on the throne of David. Uh, next, David explains and recounts the promises for Solomon. Um, and that's very similar to what uh, we've looked at already, so I won't read it word for word. <clears throat> but I will note in verse 7, uh, he says, I will establish, and this is God speaking, I will establish his kingdom forever, the son of David, if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. So there's an emphasis here on the conditionality of the promises, which, remember, that conditionality was left out of the account in chapter 17. Uh, if we want to speculate on the reason for this, uh, it would seem that the chronicler has one or both of these purposes in mind. Um, first would be to explain to his audience the reason that Solomon was not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. Um, as the readers would know, uh, Solomon did not resolutely perform the Lord's commandments and ordinances. Um, and secondly would be to, uh, to motivate by giving a condition, by emphasizing the fact that God's promises are conditional, even though God supplies everything he commands, there is still a condition. <clears throat> so next in, in verse 8, give, David gives a charge to all of the people, uh, which the chronicler might, might just as well intend to be for his readers, uh, and really it could almost serve as his purpose statement. Uh, verse 8, so now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. And then he gives similar instructions, specifically for Solomon, verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Um, so you see there, that breaks down into sort of the three-part um, uh, equation for belief, for true belief, that it's the mind or the intellect and the emotions and the will, all three need to be present. And, and David's telling Solomon God's going to know if all three are not present in him. Uh, and then a condition again, if you seek him, and that's described there in the first part, that describes seeking him. So if Solomon does that, uh, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Um, and then the charge uh, from David to Solomon. And again, we saw earlier, um, this is picked up on the language of the Exodus more than once. And uh, it's happening here again. David says, consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. Um, and he's basically telling Solomon, do what I've done. I caught a vision for what the Lord is doing in the world. And you need to get busy and do the same thing. I've devoted the last part of my life to this. It's everything. It's everything that God's doing. It's everything I've worked for. Here it is. You take the baton and run with it. That's basically what he's saying. <coughs> uh, next, starting in verse 11, we see a summary of all the preparations that David has made for the building of the temple. Verse 11. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the inner temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God and for the storehouses of the dedicated things, also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord. And again, that last part um, was detailed in the preceding chapters, the setup of all that administration. Uh, next, he details uh, material provision, gold and silver, 
um, and all the different instruments that were to be used in worship. Um, and you'll see sprinkled throughout those following verses, gold and silver, golden and silver, um, repeated. Uh, we won't read through every detail there. Uh, we will stop on verse 19, however. Uh, here we have probably the clearest Old Testament testimony to the truth that is described later by Peter in 2 Peter 1, <clears throat> where Peter writes, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And now you're probably very familiar with that. Uh, I came on this, and I think I'd never stopped and observed this in the text here, verse 19, where David says, All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So while explicitly attributing his instructions for the temple to God, everything that he said he had planned and he was handing off to Solomon, uh, it comes from God. God has, God has been the one to give him the details. Uh, he's at the same time making it clear that God himself had not written the plans. Uh, that just like with the rest of scripture, a man, and in this case David, wrote them by the hand of God on him. So that's just a, a different way of saying what Peter says uh, there in um, 2 Peter 1. Uh, continuing in verse 20. Then David said to his son Solomon, and this again is, is even more clearly similar to what uh, Moses says to Joshua um, when he is handing off his ministry to him. Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Uh, as we'll see in verse 1 of chapter 29, David sees that Solomon is young and inexperienced. Um, and Solomon himself attests to this in 1 Kings where he says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not how to know how to go out or come in. Uh, it's apparent that for this reason, David has gone to the extent of setting up all of the administrative structure we've been studying, or at least this is part of his reason. Um, and he recounts this here in verse 21. Now behold, there are the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God, and every willing man of any skill will be with you in all the work for all kinds of service. The officials also and all the people will be entirely at your command. So David has sort of set up this perfect package and he's handing it off to Solomon for his completion as the, the man of peace over the kingdom of peace. Uh, chapter 29, last chapter in First Chronicles. Uh, so now David addresses all the people, acknowledging Solomon's youth and inexperience, and uh, going on to detail how it is that Solomon will be able to accomplish the plan set out with the provision that the Lord has already made through David, starting with verse 1. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, with all my ability, um, and you remember, like I said, when David caught the vision, he put everything he had into it. So he says, with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antinomy, and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Um, and he's going to give even more than planned. 
what he describes here apparently uh, is coming out of his personal treasure in these next verses, as opposed to the state funds acquired by military conquest, which is what he's, he's just described. Uh, verse 3, Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the, for the holy temple. And then the way David describes his heart uh, behind this superabundant gift of the Lord's work uh, brings for me brings to mind Paul's description of the Macedonians' generosity in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, where he says, In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Um, so it just seems to be as, as David is giving to this work of building the temple, so the Macedonians give in their joy to the work of building the church. Uh, David goes on, in, in, uh, starting in verse 4, to specify the quantity of the gift. Uh, 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of refined silver, uh, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver, uh, for all the work done by the craftsmen. <coughs> and here we see that his point in recounting his own dedication is to encourage others to show such dedication as well. Uh, end of verse 5, he says, Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? And uh, verse 6, it's met with a desired response. Then the rulers of the father's household and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers over the king's work offered willingly. So the king gets his heart right and pours himself into the work that God's doing in the world and those who follow him follow him with joy and pour themselves into it as well. Again here, Paul's language in 2 Corinthians seems to echo that found here. Um, as he describes the Macedonians as having given of their own accord. Uh, and the chronicler's description of the people's giving, which, and, and note this, the, the, the people's giving far exceeds what David had given. Um, this was instructive for the chronicler's audience, and should be for us also. Giving to the Lord's work is not the exclusive privilege of the wealthy few. Uh, on the contrary, the bulk of provision should come from the joyful generosity of the average person. Um, and if you compare the numbers, that's the case. Uh, the giving in verse 7 is greater than David's private giving uh, up in verse 4. And then it's described, whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury. And then verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. So there's a lot of joy and thanksgiving and, and glory in this outpouring of generosity. And then appropriately, this display of God's grace uh, to and through his people results in a wonderful doxological prayer of thanksgiving to God, um, starting in verse 10. And uh, I keep parts of this in my prayer journal. It's just, it's, it's, it's one of the best prayers in scripture. Verse 10, so David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. It's not David's military might that has accomplished this, but God's might. He's pointing this out in his prayer. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. And then we see clear, clear praise and thanksgiving directed to God in verse 13. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. 
and then David's recognition of his own and his people's unworthiness, and again, God's singular position as the giver. God's the giver of everything that's been brought. Verse 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. And, and the significance of this here, this is, this is a glory that Israel has never seen. You know, David's brought them to this position where they're, they're preeminent among nations. Um, and so David could be thinking of himself here, but he's about to, to hand off his, uh, his kingdom to his son, how great he is. And instead he does the opposite and recognizes how humble he and his people are uh, in light of God's majesty and the, the, in light of the reality of God as giver. Uh, and here we see he's making this point repetitive, repetitively that God is the giver. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. Now David has clearly learned this lesson. Remember when he first gets in mind in chapter 17, I'm going to build God a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. David's finally gotten that. He's finally um, uh, appropriated that lesson to his own heart. Uh, verse 17, he goes back to uh, sort of an indicative he had given to Solomon and prays through it for him. Since I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I and the integrity of my heart have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. Um, so because uh, uh, the, the king is joyful and willing, so are the people. Um, and it's verse 19, actually, where he prays for Solomon. Uh, but we see in verse 18, uh, covenant language. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. He's already sort of uh, alluded to the fact that the people are dependent on God to have a generous heart. Here he really says it clearly. Um, to preserve this heart that the people have uh, is going to require God's generosity in giving them this heart. Um, and that's, that's instructive in whatever, whatever place you're in, in terms of needing to accomplish something, in terms of needing to come into submission, into obedience. Uh, you're going to be dependent on God for the heart to do it correctly. And to petition him in prayer like this is a good model. This is where he uh, asked God to be faithful, to give um, Solomon what David has charged him with having. So you see at the same time Solomon's responsibility and the dependence on God to give it. Uh, verse 19, and give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. And then finally, verse 20, he exhorts the people to join, in, to join him, to join David in blessing the Lord. Then David said to all the assembly, now bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the king. So you see David's humility on behalf of the people and on his own behalf reflected in the people's humility in bowing in worship. Now remember, as we close chapter 29, uh, that we've, what we've come through to this point, uh, all of 1 Chronicles is actually not to be taken as a literary whole. Uh, Chronicles is, is just one book in the canon, so uh, the division of it into two books in our Bibles uh, isn't something that should keep us from seeing the, the, the whole thing, parts one and two as a whole. 
Um, and this is particularly important to note because we see here, uh, as I mentioned, the near-term fulfillment of the Davidic covenant promise of David's son who will build a temple and reign on his throne. Uh, but this is not the chronicler's last word on the subject. Uh, as we've observed since the beginning, his is a more messianic and eschatological view of the fulfillment of this promise. So with that in mind, uh, we see uh, the end of this portion of the narrative uh, come with grand sacrifices and then Solomon's ascension to the throne of David. Verse 21, on the next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank that day before the Lord with great gladness. And this is something that's been repeated several times. Um, the, the prophecy of the building of the temple and the people coming into the kingdom ordained by the Lord back in Deuteronomy includes uh, food with that celebration. So we saw that when David finally brings the ark successfully into Jerusalem, and we see it again here uh, as Solomon rises to the throne. And the, the whole focus, like I said at the beginning of this whole section, is on the temple. The purpose for Solomon's ascension to the throne is that he would build the temple. Uh, and just a note on what David prayed for Solomon, that's the part that clearly is fulfilled in Solomon, is the building of the physical temple. Solomon will later go on to be unfaithful, uh, but the Lord keeps him faithful to build the temple, and the Lord is pleased with it and comes and fills the temple with his presence. Uh, and we'll read about that, of course, in Second Chronicles. Uh, next part of verse 22. Uh, and they made Solomon the son of David king a second time, and they anointed him as ruler for the Lord and Zadok as priest. Um, so again, the dual focus on the, the kingship and the priesthood and the, the, the legal priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. So both are there. Uh, just a note about the wording here, uh, that it says the second time uh, probably means that this public ceremony followed the private one uh, that the chronicler doesn't describe. It's described in 1 Kings um, uh, chapter 1. Uh, but it, that occurred in response to Adonijah's conspiracy, and as I noted last time, the chronicler seems largely to ignore the drama surrounding Solomon's ascension, um, probably treating it as a foregone conclusion because of the certainty of the prophecy by which David knew that Solomon would certainly be the one to, um, to come to the throne after him. Uh, verse 23, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the officials, the mighty men, and also all the sons of King David pledged allegiance to Solomon, to King Solomon. Again, ignoring the controversy that surrounded uh, the time right after Solomon's enthronement um, and the, the ultimate death of Adonijah there. Uh, verse 25, the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal majesty, which had not been on any king before him in Israel. Um, he, he's truly the greater son. Um, and we see that as a type repeated in scripture. Um, Joshua was the greater following Moses. Elisha is the greater following Elijah. Jesus is the greater following John the Baptist. Solomon is the greater following David. Uh, verse 26 uh, begins the chronicler's uh, commentary on David at the end of David's life. That's verses 26 and 27. Now David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel the period which he reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned in Hebron seven years and in Jerusalem 33 years. Uh, it goes through uh, 28, actually. Then he died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches and honor, and his son Solomon reigned in his place. So his son, his chosen heir, succeeded him on the throne. 
um, we see great blessing for David. Uh, he reigned over a united kingdom. Uh, he had a long reign, 40 years broken up between Hebron and Jerusalem. Uh, he lived to a ripe old age full of days and riches and honor, and he chose his successor. So for the chronicler, David, David was faithful and uh, a good model uh, for, for the people he's writing to as they, as they seek to be faithful after the exile. Uh, verse 29 is kind of like a bibliography for the chronicler's account of David uh, and his kingship. He notes his sources other than the canonical book of Sam Samuel, which is not to be confused with what he calls the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer. Uh, and none of the, the, the works that he references here exist today. But he says, now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer, in the Chronicles of, Chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the Chronicles of Gad the Seer. And verse 30 is something of a uh, summary statement of all that has been recorded to this point based on these various sources. With all his reign, his power, and the circumstances which came on him, on Israel, and on all the kingdoms of the land. Uh, so that is the end of First Chronicles. <coughs> uh, and I had in mind to sort of do a, a summary of what we've studied in the whole series. Um, I did that last time. So actually, I thought of, especially after taking the Lord's Supper today and, and thinking about uh, David's heart um, as, he, as he makes his great prayer in chapter 29, um, it might be more useful just to look at David as, as the example that the chronicler is clearly setting him up to be for his readers, which would include us. Um, <coughs> the conditions that David gives to Solomon, and if I look back here, he prays in verse 17, since I know, O oh my God, you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I in the integrity of my heart have willingly offered all these things. And I'm looking for his instructions to Solomon. <laughs> well, I can't find it, so I'm going to ad lib on that. Um, Basically, he commands to Solomon, like I said, the three-part uh, equation of obedience, that he has the will and the joyfulness and the, um, the knowledge of God to be faithful. Uh, and we see if he does that, then God will prosper him in his kingdom. And, and certainly he did that for a time. He did that at turns. But in 1 Kings 11, I was having my quiet time uh, that included that yesterday, where... Uh, the kingdom where God tells Solomon that the kingdom will not remain with his sons, that the kingdom is going to be divided. Uh, he tells Solomon, you did not do as your father David did. And when you think about everything we've seen, and, and, and the chronicler maybe alludes to the incident with Bathsheba, for him the incident with the census was much more significant, that all that innocent blood was spilt because of David's self-determination and pride. Um, we can see David is a pretty egregious sinner, and he was. He saw himself that way. So the question has to be asked, you know, if David was such a huge sinner and, and really Solomon's sins that we know of were really only incrementally worse than David's maybe, you know, we can see specific ways that he violated the law, but we can see that with David also. What's the difference? Why is David held up as uh, an example? Um, and I think the answer is uh, David's eyes shed streams of water because he didn't keep God's law. 
when he saw that he had violated God's law, he grieved. And he had a grieving that was a godly grief that led to repentance. Um, you know, Psalm 51 is, is uh, maybe the, the greatest example in scripture of what repentance looks like. And David, as we noted in weeks past, was a repenter. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes when we come to the Lord's Supper, which we're doing today, if you didn't do it already, you'll do it next service. Uh, we can look at ourselves and think, you know, I'm such a great sinner. Should I take the Lord's Supper? Uh, and what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper with, uh, with the right heart? Uh, and, and I think the answer is look at the difference between Solomon and David. Uh, David grieved over his sin. His heart responded rightly when he saw his sin. He was a repenter. You know, there's a sense in which the Lord's table is kind of like sacrifices. There's, there's not a, a, you know, real clear connection there. But David says at the end of um, his prayer in, in Psalm 51, I would bring sacrifices, but I know you won't delight in them because my heart hasn't hasn't repented of the sin. So grant me that repentance, and then I'll bring sacrifices. And that's the same thought, I think, behind taking the Lord's Supper with the right heart. Um, so just to leave you there, um, you know, that's not the overall point of First Chronicles, but it's certainly related to it, that we worship in the right way. And the Chronicler is certainly concerned with everything being done according to the Word of God. And if you look at it that way, this is certainly tied in, that that if we come to the worshipful act of taking the Lord's Supper, or like Solomon, you're coming to the throne, a, 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 a fearsome responsibility uh, for, for a man of God to lead God's people, um, that you'd better be doing it with the right heart and living in light of the fact that you know you're a sinner, but that you know you're dependent on God's grace and depending on God's grace for repentance. Uh, so with that, let's close in prayer. And uh, I think Matt will come up and do announcements. All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you and give you glory. Lord, we thank you for the glory of your word, Father, for how you have, with wisdom that surpasses our understanding, you have laid out uh, the history of your people, the history of your work and redemption, and Father, um, examples, not just in your son who is perfect and never sinned, but Father, in a man like David who sinned grievously and yet lived um, as a godly man, who lived as a repenter. I pray now, Lord, that um, you'd help us to uh, have that repentance in our hearts, that we would pray like David did for Solomon, that you would give us perfect hearts to uh, walk in light of all your statutes, to follow your word as we seek to worship you, and Lord, to truly make, to seek to make all of our lives to be the kind of worship that's pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.